0: You're listening to the Reinvention Project with Jim Rome podcast. Welcome to episode 14 of the Reinvention Project with Jim Rome. I want to start by saying I've got another tremendous episode with an amazing guest, which I will get to in just a moment. But first, I want to take a moment and I want to share a quick story with you all. So I attended our son's end of the season high school baseball banquet last night. Great night where the teams were saluted for their grind and for their grit and for the lessons learned and for how much each grew individually and collectively during a really challenging year, both athletically and academically because of the pandemic. So it was a great night all the way around. And then one of the mothers of one of the players, and keep in mind, this is a high school player I'm talking about, she told me that her son had suffered a concussion in season and that he couldn't do anything at all for a couple of weeks. So she told him, I want you to listen to this podcast with Mr. Rome, and that he had already heard several episodes and found them to be, in her words, extremely motivational, And I can't tell you how much that means to me to hear something like that because here I am, mid-50s, doing everything I can to reinvent myself mentally, physically, emotionally, and professionally. And this is a teenager who is listening and getting something out of it. In short, one of the best compliments I've gotten since I started this project, especially given the family that it came from. And it shows that many of these principles are universal, and there really is something for just about everybody here if you're truly committed to improving and becoming the very best version of yourself. So it goes without saying, I was very pleased to hear that. Now in terms of today's episode, I'm speaking with a retired Navy SEAL commander. Now if it seems like I speak to or about an inordinately high number of Navy SEALs, it's because I do. And the reason that I do is I'm fascinated by and I so admire and respect the traits necessary to becoming a Navy SEAL. The mental and physical toughness, the resolve exhibited by these individuals is something that I want, something I've always wanted, something I want to learn more about. Truth is, I can't get enough of it. And no one exemplifies these qualities more than Mark Devine. In addition to being a retired Navy SEAL commander, Mark Devine is a New York Times bestselling author. He's founder and CEO of SEAL Fit and Unbeatable Mind, the founder of several multi-million dollar businesses and a lifetime martial artist. And not just a warrior, but a mindful warrior with a very different message that I know you'll benefit from. There are a number of lessons and tactics and strategies for quieting your mind, improving your mental toughness, and developing that warrior mindset in this episode that I know you're going to benefit from. Episode 14 of the Reinvention Project with retired Navy SEAL Commander Mark Devine is coming at you right now. Now, Mark, you and I, of course, have spoken before. I have interviewed you, you have interviewed me. It's always time that is incredibly well spent. Well, for me, anyway, I don't know about you, but I wanted to do it yet again. Thank you so much for making time for it. Mark, how are you? How's your world?
1: My world is awesome, Jim. Um, one day, one lifetime is the way I travel anyway. So <laughs> travel pretty light and try not to take things too seriously. So things are going pretty well for me. Why
0: don't we go and start right there? One day, one lifetime. What does that mean?
1: Well, you know, I learned that through my, um, you know, the Navy SEALs. Like every day we had to, you know, show up. With 100% focus on our mission, 100% focus on our development as uh, as a warrior, 100% focus on our teammates. And if we let our guard down in any one of those areas, our our self mastery, focus on the team, focus on the mission, then we could die, and today could be our last day. And so uh, that really generated a kind of a a a mindset of focusing on the right things, you know, keeping things really simple and not overcomplexifying things, not worrying about how you did yesterday and you know, your screw ups from the past and not focusing too far in the future, but just really radically focusing on what's important right here, right now. Okay, so, so I've, I've carried that into my life and it's really, Quite effective, actually.
0: I was just gonna say, Mark, this is already one of my favorite conversations already. One answer in. You know, it seems <laughs> it seems a little cliche, and I hate to begin most interviews with Navy SEALs, Mark, by asking them how they got into the Teams. But the fact of the matter is, virtually every single SEAL that I've ever spoken to has a fascinating story as to how they got in. You certainly are no different. So I'm curious about the journey that led you to the teams, but mostly because also it's a journey of reinvention, and this is a reinvention podcast. So for those who don't know, what led you to the teams?
1: I love telling this story. You know, I had zero interest in the military when I was a kid. Um, I got through high school, no interest in the military, went to Colgate University, you know, competitive athlete there and was a a decent B student. And I went to Wall Street after that, no interest in the military. And I uh, got my MBA at... Uh, NYU Stern became a certified public accountant. I was off to the races, you know, doing what everyone would think would be, uh, you know, a great career, especially at an early early age, MBA, CPA, and earning good money. So what led me to the teams was during the four years while I was in New York City, I began a lifetime journey uh, as a martial artist and a Zen practitioner. It started literally six months after I moved to Manhattan, you know, after graduating from Colgate. And it was sitting on that Zen bench, Jim, that that started to change everything for me. It started it Literally, as we know now, I, no one had heard of the term neuroplasticity in 1986, but as a 21-year-old guy, you know, my brain was still undeveloped. And here I am doing, um, you know, basic and then intermediate meditation training under the watchful eye of a Zen master, Tadashi Nakamura, and uh, my brain was changing. But more than that, I was learning to kind of still my inner chatter, began to investigate some of the stories that I was telling myself about who I was and what I was supposed to do in my life. And and the more time I spent meditating, contemplating, investigating, uh, the less I really liked what I saw and who I saw. And I recognized that I was kind of heading down the wrong path pretty fast. So I, I guess I'm, you know, I'll kind of pause there. That led me to the seals. It's a it's a longer story, but I feel very blessed that I was able to literally have a midlife crisis at 22, 23 years old, where I, I recognized super early on that if I didn't align with my true calling and purpose in life, I was never gonna find happiness and I was gonna be miserable. And it was meditation that led me to that truth. And so I feel very blessed. And the SEAL teams, you know, that's a whole nother story. Like I absolutely, once I got into the teams, you know, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that I had made the right decision. I, it was like I had just come home, you know, and, and these were my peeps. So I didn't have any trouble with training. You know, I, I just rocked the training and had a blast. And a lot of that had to do with the Zen training, of course.
0: All right. So th- there is so much good stuff in that, Mark. Now, you've also said that you're calling and this is what this was, right? You had to find your calling. You had a midlife right. crisis in your early 20s. But you've said that your calling is never something you do. It's something you be. What does right. that mean?
1: Well, I think a lot of people struggle with that, Jim, because when they're trying to find their purpose, they're thinking about like careers or things that they do that make them happy. And what I've learned is it's not the doing that makes us happy, it's who we are. And then let the doing follow the who, you know? So when I was sitting on that Zen bench, you know, it wasn't like I suddenly had some mystical voice say, Mark, you're not supposed to be a, a CPA, you're supposed to be a Navy SEAL. What I did was get intuition, you know, from my spiritual guidance system, if you will, that said, Mark, you're supposed to be a warrior, right? This is not your path to, to be in, you know, business world right now you're not a merchant let's say so i learned that um that's that inner sense of beingness which i now call your archetypal energy right and that'll change throughout your life so in my 20s and early 30s that archetypal energy was very much to be a warrior and and to do warrior shit you know that was karmic energy let's just say that i needed to fulfill and if i didn't then i was going to you know i was going to be unhappy and i would probably have to come and repeat that lesson again so you know, if you focus on this, the inner sense, and this is why meditation is so important, I believe, when I teach it at Unbilled Minds, like focus, learn to listen to your inner guidance system on who you're supposed to be and how you're supposed to show up in the world. And then you can figure out the doing part, which then becomes your kind of, your main mission in life. And of course, that mission can change too. As your purpose changes, your mission will change. And from there, once you figure out the mission, then you can neck it down into career choice, jobs, you know, entrepreneurial ventures and that type of thing. But if you don't do it that way, if you try to start out with just playing whack-a-mole with different jobs, I mean, you could, you could waste 10, 20, or 30 years until you find something you maybe even have some modicum of happiness in because it's sort of tangentially related to your passion and your purpose in life, but it still might not, might not be entirely on target. So I know many of you
0: are small business owners, and today, small business owners are busier than ever before because they're focused on managing and growing their business. Because of that, they can't always spend the time they need on recruiting. This is why LinkedIn Jobs has made it easier to find and hire the best candidates for free. I love LinkedIn Jobs. I have been using this for years now, and I'll tell you why that is. Because you can post your job for free to reach LinkedIn's network of 740 million professionals. You simply fill out targeted screening questions to get your role in front of the most qualified candidates with the experience and the skills and the motivation you need. And then you use simple tools to filter and prioritize the top candidates that you would like to interview. Great, great process. Great product. LinkedIn Jobs will help you hire the right person for your role and your first job post is free. Simply go to linkedin.com slash roam. Again, I love this product. I know you will too. Go to linkedin.com slash to post your first job for free. Terms and conditions do apply here. If you don't learn to look within, you could spend an entire lifetime in the wrong place. Like, Mark, I don't want to gloss over this. It's one thing for you to understand that, you know what, I'm meditative and I'm athletic and I want this lifestyle and I'm not getting that at a desk being a CPA, but there's way more to that. Like, your your destiny was almost preordained in that you have a family business and that family business went back generations and generations. What about that aspect of it and what was it like to tell your family that you were going to pursue your own path?
1: Well, this is probably one of the reasons it's so hard for people to find their path, especially early in life, because of the conditioning that is, you know, brought about through your upbringing by your family of origin and by your peers and by culture in general. And today it's even worse with all the social media and and constant, you know, connection, which equals distraction. And so people aren't spending the time in nature, not spending time meditating and doing the things that allow them to connect to their inner guidance system that I spoke of earlier. So for me, you know, I had that same challenge again. And if I hadn't slowed down and learned to still my mind and to meditate, I literally would have probably be be back at the family business with my siblings right now. And that's certainly what I was quote unquote groomed for, even though it's, Most as with most families, it's kind of a subconscious thing, right? There's a certain set of rules and roles and expectations that are placed upon children and families, you know, things that are acceptable, not acceptable for career choices. For example, you know, my family, the military was completely unacceptable. Like that was what you did if you fucked up. And the reason we had that kind of mindset was because my dad literally drove his car into his fraternity house, created major damage. Um, and he was standing in front of a judge and the judge said, uh, Lee's divine. You're an idiot. Now here's, here's what we're going to do. You, you have choice a, you can go to jail for a year or six months or whatever it was or choice B you can join the army (laughs) and serve for two years. Hmm. And he goes B. So, (laughs) so, So he chose B. And so the army for him was a miserable, you know, kind of like don't go to jail, go to the army. So that got passed down to me. So I never even considered the military. And I would not have considered the military had I not investigated those stories. And had I not slowed my mind down and sat in silence for a period of you know one to two years before it started to percolate up that that was not my path, then I probably would never have investigated that story. And many people do not. It's critical, right? So there's two sides to this coin. One side is your kind of karmic or spiritual energy, which you come into this life with that says, this is what you're supposed to do. And and this is how you're supposed to grow and learn. And they're they're really related because if you don't align with what you're supposed to do or be how you're supposed to be, and then what you're supposed to do in terms of your purpose, how you're supposed to serve, then you're going to have bigger and bigger challenges. And so your growth opportunities are going to be significant, but they're going to be really painful. But if you, can, if you can start to grow, like take responsibility for your own evolution, which includes your physical and mental and emotional awareness, like I did through the martial arts and through Zen and through my physical training, then you begin to get the clarity of how you're supposed to be and show up in the world. And then those two become kind of part and parcel of how you live your life, the growing and the being. If you don't do those two things, and most people, by the way, Jim, don't because they haven't been taught this then, you know, you just keep getting slammed with these big life crises and challenges. And you might find success, but you never find true peace of mind and contentment, right? If you, you know, success, I mean, in the outer sense, right? You might have a big bank account and fancy cars and the houses, but if you don't align with your calling, that beingness that we're talking about, and you don't take responsibility for continuing your own growth as a human, then you know, eventually you just hit up against a wall. Wow. So uh,
0: you and I, I mean, if you don't walk into that martial arts studio and you don't start to work on your mind and your body and your spirit, I know you and I are not having this conversation right now, but in terms of the physicality, again, you were a really good athlete. You spent a lot of time outdoors when you were growing up and you would go climbing and go into the mountains and spend time in nature and with yourself. But this whole Zen aspect, Mark, when you went in there and Nakamura, you know, the Zen master was teaching this, not everybody took to, right because meditating especially in the beginning is not easy like of that class how many actually took to it and why did you do so well with it
1: well you're absolutely right like where i trained in new york on 23rd street world sado karate headquarters where nakamura taught now he had hundreds of thousands of students i have no idea how many he has today but it's just probably half a million or more and that was the headquarters and so that particular school slash dojo had over a thousand students and I bet you there weren't more than 10 of us who did the meditation class. And I went back and visited about five years ago. And I I went and did a black belt class and meditation class. It was great fun. And there were about 15. That's it. So I was expecting it to be packed because it's just so, you know, to me, it's just obviously so important, but I think people don't they're not able to see the results right away. And we're taught in our society to, to have instant gratification, instant results. And you get a little semblance of that in fitness. So if you join a martial arts program and you're a white belt, well, three months later, you're going to be a yellow belt. Wow, I'm making progress. And if you, know, if you go to a CrossFit gym and you learn some of the basic movements, three months later, you're going to be seeing some six-pack abs. And you're like, wow, that's cool. This works. But if you go to a Zen studio or any type of meditation practice, it doesn't matter. They're all effective, usually, if they're done right. And you sit there for three months, three months later, you're gonna be like, what the hell am I doing? Nothing's different. I don't notice anything. This is really hard. I think I'm just sitting and thinking, I don't see any benefit to this, and you quit. So yeah, it's it's difficult for people to start and maintain a long-term meditation practice. They don't have that objective, external evidence that it's working. They haven't learned or they don't have a good teacher who's trying to point out the really finer details of, of how to meditate, uh, a step-by-step process for beginning to refine the nervous system and to, you know, to concentrate deeper and then to be able to practice the mindful awareness of the patterns, you know, similar to what I was doing, where I was looking at the patterns of my thinking and being able to poke holes in some of the beliefs and assumptions that I'd taken on earlier in life as gospel. So I think meditation has been hard for a lot of people because there's not very many effective teachers. And so people kind of bounce around from one thing to the other, and then they don't see the results, like I said, so they quit. And also the other thing is you don't need, you know, people are already ridiculously overcommitted, you know? And so people think, I'm just gonna add one more thing. No way. But you don't need a ton of time. It's not like it's almost kind of like where fitness has come, you know, used to be in the triathlon. And you would probably did this yourself, but we used to work out, you know, three times a day for an hour or more each for triathlon training, a ridiculous time commitment. And nowadays, you know, my, my functional workout is maybe 30 minutes long, you know, four or five times a week meditation, similar, like less is more. You don't need to do two hours every day, an hour in the morning, an hour at the evening. You know, I know some traditions kind of want you to do that, but that's maybe for advanced serious practitioners. What you need to do is like 20 minutes in the morning or 20 minutes in the evening. And there's not a person on this planet who can't find 20 minutes when it has such a profound impact on their mental and emotional health in my opinion
0: you know mark to that point also i'm looking at you right now and because i know you and i've seen you of late i mean you look like a million bucks you look like somebody who's doing just that spending hours and hours and hours in the gym and that's necessarily or not necessarily the case i've also heard you preach this that in fact we all need to slow the fuck down. It just, it sounds sort of counterintuitive, right? Like, like right. how do we, because at the same time, Mark, and you can break this down, I know that you believe in 20X, that we're all 20 times more capable of what we're currently doing, but at the same time, you want to mention, hey, listen, we got to slow down. We have to slow down. So it's kind of counterintuitive. How do we accomplish 20 times what we're accomplishing right now, but at the same time, slowing down? How does that
1: work? the seals, we had a saying slow is smooth, smooth is fast. So everything you do, you have to do it with as as much precision, quality, and attentiveness as possible. And if you do, two things happen. One, you you maintain a real clear sense of presence. Like your mind isn't bouncing all around. You're just doing this one thing. And so you attain that kind of Zen-like flow state just in doing this one thing that you're doing. And two, you tend to do it very well. So you don't have to repeat yourself. You don't have fuck ups. You know, you don't get injured. You don't do the things that that actually slow you down. So when people move too fast doing too many things, they get nowhere fast and oftentimes stop themselves in their tracks because they get burnout or injured or they're fucking up, right? Or they're doing suboptimal work. So what I've learned is to teach or what I teach my kind of clientele and my tribe is to just get really, really radically focused on what the one or two things, or maybe three, if you get the first two done that you really need to do today. And then, you know, starting with the first one, just bring your full attention to that and you chunk it down into those micro goals that I've talked about with you many uh, a couple of years ago when we spoke you chunk it down to those micro goals and then you just focus on one of those at a time and you take those at, with the slowest smooth smoothest fast approach until it's done and you move on to the next and then the next so you're still only doing one thing at a time you're not multitasking you're bringing that laser-like focus which you're training in your 20 minutes of meditation every morning with your zen mind and you're making tremendous progress but you know like the story of the turtle and the hare you, you might feel like the turtle at first but pretty soon you've passed up all the hairs because they're sitting on the side of the road gasping for air right because you just can't keep up the pace that people are you know are trying to keep up today and i think you're seeing that now Jim, with all the burnout and all the people especially after the pandemic you know people literally are like rage quitting their jobs because they don't want to go back to that frenetic pace they don't they they know intuitively it's not healthy the gig is up you know what i mean I do
0: know what you mean. And I'm seeing it firsthand. I I get that. And slow is smooth and smooth is fast. You know, Mark, you, you, the concepts that I want to get into with you, we, we could spend hours, days, weeks. These are the things that you teach and write about, but I want to throw a couple of things at you. You wrote a great, great book that you and I have talked about. I love the book, The Unbeatable Mind. It in order to have an unbeatable mind, like you need to control your thoughts, right? But how do you go about doing that? How do you develop an unbeatable mind? Well, and I know that's thick. I know you yeah, you could you geez. could spend
1: hours on that. We could we got a whole week here. Right. Okay, so I'll I'll try to break it down Barney style, which means simple. Unbeatable mind to me means whole mind. And whole mind means when you use your entire your, your whole human capacity for what we would call thinking and thinking isn't just cognitive thinking. It's also non-linear contextual thinking It's thinking with your heart, thinking with your biome or your gut and thinking with your entire body slash nervous system. Right. And also what we would call transrational thought or being able to pick up information from, you know, what you would consider to be outside your body, or even from maybe, uh, you know, guides or spirits, if you will, if you believe in that, right. And in order to develop that whole mind slash unbeatable mind, you really need to kind of approach it multifaceted, you know, in a multifaceted manner. And we call that integration training. And so there is the physical aspect because your brain, your, your actual brain, your heart, your gut, your biome, your body is used by your mind for receiving and transmitting information for understanding and for making meaning and for creating action powerful action in the world so this is why when i say that physical training is important for developing the mind and most people don't say that but i think it's critically important because the healthier your body is that the healthier your thinking is going to be because your brain is your body and your heart brain is your body and your biome brain is your body so we want to uh, uh, balance that body We want to de-stress that body and we want to cleanse and purify that body. And so exercise is a great way to do this. Obviously we need sleep. We need clean nutrition and we need to de-stress ourselves by slowing down, which we've already talked about, by being out in nature and by breathing effectively. So you recall the big four skills of mental toughness. The first one is controlled breathing. We call it box breathing. So box breathing de-stresses the body and brain and brings it back into balance. And it brings your brain waves down into a controllable, you know, alpha, beta, high alpha, low beta range, which is experiences flow when you're in a concentrated state. Whereas most people, when they don't train like this, they don't train their body through physical exercise, proper sleep, nutrition, and nature and meditation, their brains are going to be, you know, high beta or gamma, and they're racing all over the place. They call that monkey mind in the Buddhist tradition. And so it's hard for them to focus for long periods of time on any one thing. They're bouncing all around. This is why they get so distracted and they're drawn toward the gamification of social media and their mobile devices because it suits their brains because their brain wants to be bouncing to the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. So they have trouble really focusing on long-term projects and you know, the types of things that we're talking about. So so anyways, I could keep going, but you got to start developing an unbilled mind by, by focusing on the physical body and aspects because if you don't do that, You don't stand a prayer. You know what I mean? It just doesn't work. Again, this is another reason why people fail at meditation because they're deeply stressed. They're in a state of total sympathetic nervous kind of paralysis. And then someone's telling them to sit down and meditate and their mind and bodies are just super agitated. And it's actually painful for them. So we recommend, you know, exercising, sleep, you know, things I've just talked about, plus box breathing just to de-stress and control your arousal response. And then we can move on to step two, right? Which is the second of the big four skills, which is to begin to learn how to concentrate. And so we'll use uh visualization and a mantra or a you know a, a power statement or you know an object to concentrate. And we and we develop deep state of concentration power where you can really radically focus on one thing. And then the third step, and I'll just go through these real quick, sure. is to once you develop that concentration power, then you can turn that flashlight onto the patterns of thought. And this is what happened to me naturally when I was first studying Zen. And it took me about a year and a half to develop concentration power. And then when I took my you know, foot off the gas pedal of concentration and allowed some content to rearise in my mind, that's when I was able to, to see the patterns much more clearly because I had been concentrating so deeply on one thing. When I allowed content to rearise in my mind, then it became very opaque to me what was happening. It was was like, I let a freight train back into my mind and I was able to see that those thoughts came in kind of looping patterns and that those thoughts had triggers. Those triggers had a a root cause, either external, internal. And I was able to really, you know, create this deep separation between the thinking aspect of who Mark Devine was and this watching aspect of who Mark Devine was, which I now call the witness. And that was like the game changer for me because then i recognized i wasn't my thoughts and emotions i was something different and i had the potential to curate the quality and the quantity and where i put the attention of my thoughts
0: and it takes a lot of practice and a lot of work for instance mark if we're talking about overriding the negative thoughts or the freight train that somehow found its way back into your head how are we overriding or killing these patterns? Is it by box breathing or is it something else or all the above?
1: Yeah, box breathing helps with the physiological aspects. And we can also use it as a stacked practice for developing concentration. But then when we get into this mindful awareness part where we're starting to watch our thoughts, then we you know, we, we probably aren't doing box breathing, but we're still doing deep controlled nostril breathing to, to maintain that parasympathetic Uh, rest and digest and calm state. And then we introduce what I call the worm process, W-I-R-M. So this is where the mindful awareness is where I'm just watching patterns and I'm noticing them. And maybe I'm I'm making notes. Okay, that pattern was, you know, let's just say the pattern of why am I a CPA and MBA? That pattern came from my family childhood. It's been looping around in my head. There's different aspects to it, right? But I can also note, and recognize that they're they're just a story. But I haven't done anything to change them yet. This is where the worm comes in. So worm is basically when I witness a pattern, I want to basically cut it off at the knees or at the root, the closer, you know, in the Buddhist tradition they call it cutting it off at the the cutting the snake off at the head. The closer mm-hmm. you can get to the head of a snake when you try to catch it, the better off you are, right? <laughs> Cuz if you catch a snake at the tail, there's a good chance you're going to get bit. Most people can't even catch their thoughts. A beginning meditation practitioner we'll be meditating. Then they'll catch their thoughts way after they've been running with them for minutes. And they call that catching a thought at the tail. So the more that you practice, the more you can catch a thought at the head and cut it off. So like, for instance, a thought will arise. that says, you know, uh, I can't, I can't go into the Navy SEALs. My parents will be disappointed to me as soon as it, instead of hopping on that train and riding it all the way to his end or you know, having my mind catch that at the tail of it in the last car, I catch it right up front once I witness it. And then I interdict it. Then I say, nope, that's not, an, that's not a thought that I want to have right now or stop that, not now. And then I'll redirect my mind back to something positive or back to what I was doing, right? Which in this case was meditating. But in the case of, let's say, if I'm at work and a thought stream enters my head and it's not productive, it's negative, I can interdict it right away with an interdiction statement. I call them a power statement. I say, no, no, now, stop that. That's not going to serve me. Uh, that thought is false. And then I redirect my mind to something that's positive and is going to be productive. Like, what am I supposed to be focusing on? Get back, stay focused on my project, get back to my project, or, you know, say something positive to yourself, whatever, to, you know, to get yourself out of that, that negative place. And then you maintain your new focus and your more positive internal dialogue with a a simple mantra. So I have a few, you know, go-tos that I love that I play in the background. It's kind of like music. I don't need music when I work out. I don't use those kind of crutches. I have my own little internal dialogue that is softly playing in the background and it keeps a positive energetic state and there's, there's positive imagery associated with it. And so that's the worm process witness it you interdict it by trying to catch it as close to the head or the arising of the thought as possible, then you redirect your attention to something that you want to focus on that's going to serve you. And that's going to be something that's aligned with your purpose and mission and your, you know, your goal for the day. And then you maintain a positive state and that focus with a mantra. So give me Super a sense. Powerful. Like, it needs hey, to be trained though. This I I,
0: a- I love this. I love this. So give me a sense. What are some of the mantras that you go with that are running in the back of your mind?
1: Well, I first kind of discovered this technique in SEAL training. Now, you know, mantras are nothing new. Um, they're more common in the East. Although like the Christian, mysticism tradition had mantras and whatnot. But I, I just think the mantra is a, you know, here's the thing. If If you haven't trained yourself to take control of your inner dialogue the inner dialogue is going to basically be running roughshod over you. And a lot of times it's negative. Your, your brain is five times as negative as it is positive. And so people have all sorts of negative mantras, usually around their self-worth, their uh, body, you know, image, uh, whether people like them or whether they like others. So all sorts of judgments and biases and, you know, kind of nasty stuff rolling around. And so that, that's the same as a mantra. It's just negative internal dialogue. So when you, and when you cut that stuff off and you redirect it to, you know, something positive and you maintain it with a mantra, then you're basically training a new internal dialogue. So when I went in SEAL training, and we, you know, used to go out in these blistering runs, and I was a good runner, you know, usually top three or four in the class. But, you know, the, the instructors were like superheroes, and for some reason, they were faster than all of us. <laughs> hmm. And uh, maybe they knew how to run in soft sand better or whatever, but you know, so we would go off in these intense, intensely fast runs, even the long ones. And they knew that because if they knew that, if you could get the class to think that this whole run is going to be like this, it's like a false summit. So you go out at like a five minute pace on a seven mile run. And you think, well, I'm going to hold, I can't hold five minute pace for seven miles, but they might hold it for two miles. And so that, that triggers what we call the fear. wolf. The, those negative thought patterns are going to start rising soon, especially after a mile. They're like, Holy shit, I'm gassing here. And so people start talking negative to themselves. Like I can't do this. I'm sucking wind. I'm going to fail. And then they start falling behind because that negative self talk literally weakens your body, right? It makes you, it makes you weaker. So what I learned is when I, we would go off on these runs or swims. I had to start talking to myself positively really quickly. And the more that I talked to myself positively, the more that I could breathe through my nose and get all the energy and oxygen, in, then the more energy that I would accrue, even as I was starting to get winded. And so I was able to tap into a lot more energy than my teammates. And then I noticed that when, you know, after about two miles, usually the instructor slowed down. And because I was right up front, I was getting a nice break while everyone else had to huff it to catch up. And the, that made them weaker and weaker even. And so this positive, you know, mantra for me was simple, you know, in SEAL training was I'm feeling good, I'm looking good, I ought to be in Hollywood. I'm <laughs> Great. Good. I'm looking good, I ought to be. And I would say it to myself over and over and over. And I had imagery and and emotions associated with that. So that when I said it to myself, I would evoke in my mind images of me looking pretty damn good. And you know, being in Hollywood, I didn't never actually want to go to Hollywood. It was more of a metaphor for, you know, I'm just on top of the world and I'm going to crush this kind of thing. And by the way, it you works. could, yeah. and
0: and you could, because you are looking good. I know you're feeling good. You should be in Hollywood, my man. You look great. So like <laughs> what's, and I'm trying to stay positive because that's what we're talking about, but I just have to ask, like, if you don't learn these techniques, what's the risk that we run in having an unconditioned mind and an inability to concentrate and focus deeply?
1: Well, I think the results speak for themselves. You get pretty much mediocrity and disaster. You either get a disastrous life where people are going from one crisis to another, and not you know not having the resources to get by, not having any financial security, not having good relationships because they're always torpedoing their relationships, and then when this is and also being um, aggressive because you know they they will think that something's being this is being done to them when in reality you know we create the world that we live in both at a personal and a collective level and so if someone hasn't controlled their mind and they're always in a negative state even if they wrap a happy glad wrapper on it like we all know people who you know we call them the smiling screws who look happy and look positive and and some of the words that come out have a positive quality but it's all negative and and really inside what they're saying is screw you or you know what i mean Um, Right. They're, they're throwing some mental judgment at you. And that that's pretty common too. That's still negative. So what negativity does is attracts more negativity in the form of, you know, whatever your projection du jour is, right. It could be anger. It could be jealousy. It could be rage. And, um, and so that's what you get, right. You get a life that is uncomfortable, you get a life that has a a high degree of misery in it and um, discontentment. And then at a collective level, you also get that and you get violence as well. Hmm. So I think that one of the reasons our culture is, at least in the West, is seems so out of control right now is because people's minds are out of control because they've never learned to, to control their minds and to think positively and to take responsibility for their thoughts and their words and for how their thoughts and words affect others and their environment.
0: Mm, That is really strong. I love that. I love that. Now, Mark, you also have written about feeding the courage wolf. Are we covering that or is that something different? What does that mean
1: to feed the courage wolf? Well, it's related to this, but it's really more of the emotional side. So, you know, of course, that metaphor comes from the native story about you know like the, the native elder telling the story to his grandkids let's just say that, that there's these two wolves that live inside of us the wolf of fear it lives in our head and the wolf of courage lives in our heart and the, you know the kids say well oh and then the grandfather would say you know these uh, two wolves vie for your attention for your internal food so to speak where you're putting your energy and they're fighting for your control you know for control over you and they would say the kids would say well which wolf wins and the grandfather says the wolf that wins is the one you feed the most and so if you feed the fear wolf by constantly being engaged in in negativity and fear and victimization then then that wolf just grows and grows and grows and it literally will snuff out courage and courage wolf is in the heart and you feed the courage wolf with positivity a love, appreciation, gratitude, forgiveness. So you've got to feed the courage wolf in order to starve the fear wolf. Because the more attention you put on acceptance and love and forgiveness and appreciating other people, even if they're super successful and better looking than you, just appreciating everyone for being on this journey in life and this, this challenging you know, thing called life. It's difficult to do, but once you start training yourself to look for the positive and training yourself daily with a gratitude practice and appreciation practice and a, and a practice of letting go of regrets and letting go of uh, injustices and righteousness, then suddenly you start feeding that courage wolf more and more and opening up to the energies of um, you know the more positive qualities that exist within us. The negative qualities in us and that fear wolf that exists in our brain, they block the light of our positive qualities. We all have these positive qualities. That's why, you know, you said earlier, I think everyone's capable of 20 times more. What blocks the 20 X in people is the negativity. And it's not just negative dialogue. It's the negative feelings about themselves and about others. So we've got to get out of that state of negativity and move toward the higher vibrational qualities of of acceptance, forgiveness, and love. And -hmm. that's feeding the courage wolf.
0: And that's breaking those negative patterns. You know, one right. and and I so appreciate this entire conversation, Mark. I really thank you so much for this. Before I let you go, you know, I one of the ways or reasons I found my way to you a number of years back is you teach mental toughness and I've always been fascinated by that. I've always wanted to be mentally tougher myself. I'm curious, how does the, and you work with all sorts of different people, high level people, but you know, normal everyday people as well. So my question is, how does the normal layperson, like the non-elite athlete, the non-special ops type, I'm talking about a middle manager, a salesperson, a soccer mom, the rest of us, how do we improve mental toughness?
1: Well, In a way, we've been talking about that on this whole podcast in the sense that if we're out of control and we're not taking responsibility for our own internal states, both emotional and mental states, then we're going to lack mental toughness. We're going to lack resiliency. And that weakness is going to be experienced as crisis or as um, injury or as ill health. Or, you know, whatever the next failure thing is. And then we're going to blame that on something else. We're going to blame it on our boss. We're going to blame it on society. We're going to blame it on whatever. The reality is we're creating all that. And so mental toughness is first requires us to recognize that we are the creator of our experience in this life. We create it. It's not happening to us. We are creating it. That's a game changer right there. So step number one is be the creator take responsibility for the quality of your thoughts and your emotions, and then your actions. And in order to do that, you need to train you need to take responsibility for your training yourself. Cause if you don't, then you're just relying on the training that your family and society provided you. And look, what kind of results those are getting you probably not optimal. So we stake responsibility for training our body and mind, and that automatically, begins to toughen us up and begins to, uh, you know, generate more resiliency because now, and you know, when the crisis hits, we recognize it for the lesson that it is. And we look for the silver lining. We look for how we're going to, you know, grow stronger from this. And we bounce back up stronger and even more positive. And then the more we practice that we begin to actually look forward to challenging situations. We actually look forward to failing because it's one more way not to do something. Now we've learned something valuable. This is like in the SEALs, you know, mental toughness of SEALs was expressed in the saying, failure is not an option. We would find a way or make a way, right? And it didn't mean that we didn't fail. It just meant that everything we tried was in the process of moving towards success. And we knew that 80% of what we tried wouldn't work, but everything we tried was going to move us towards success because we were going to learn something. And we, we used to say in the SEALs, there's either there's either winning, or learning. There's no such thing as losing or failure.
0: Winning or learning, but no such thing as losing or failure. Tremendous too. Right. So Mark, finally, like how critical then, and again, these are all things that we're talking about, and it's being woven throughout the conversation, but how critical was visualization in your first becoming a SEAL, getting through that training, and then as you continue to transform and evolve throughout your entire life, how critical has visualization been for you?
1: Jim, I think visualization is a master skill. It's key. Uh, I learned this first when I was um, like you, you alluded to it. I was training to be a Navy seal and I had learned meditation and already made the decision to shift from CPA, MBA to become a Navy seal. And that's, you know, about three years into my, maybe two and a half years into my, my four years total that I spent in New York before I became a seal. And because I had learned to visualize as a competitive athlete at Colgate. And I had a, a swim coach who was pretty, um, an early you know, opponent, proponent of sports visualization. So he had me visualize my race and I had some pretty powerful results. So I thought, well, maybe I'll use that skill, but I'll apply it to becoming a Navy SEAL. So it's not a sports specific application of no visualization. And this was new and nobody taught me this. I just had this hunch and it was one of those inner guidance things that said, visualize the outcome you're looking for. Get a clear picture in your mind of what does that look like? What, what do I look like in terms of who do I need to be to be a Navy SEAL officer? What do I need to do? How do I need to lead? How do I need to be a good teammate? And then create an image, like a motion picture image in my mind of me actually doing those things and graduating and then practice it every day. And I did this. So I would do my morning workouts and then I would sit on my little bench, my box uh, breathing or Zen bench. I would do my breathing practice, I would do my meditation, and then I would visualize, and that visualization was what I now call future me or future self. And that was of me going through seal training and graduating. Down to the, you know, what I perceived to be, you know, the imagery of what it would look like and feel like to graduate. I didn't have a lot of external imagery to support me because there wasn't much there weren't TV shows about the seals back then. I just had one a recruiting video titled be someone special. And I watched that about 10 times. And so then I kind of inserted myself into that in my mind and, and then added to it. Well, I, I did this for about nine months and suddenly something happened that is still hard for me to really describe or, or understand, but there was like this shift in the, you know, in my experience where I didn't, hope to be a Navy seal or want to be a Navy seal. Suddenly I knew I was a Navy seal. I had already accomplished it somehow. And I hadn't even, you know, gotten the call that I was accepted, but something happened. I call this winning in the mind. And that's based upon a Sun Tzu, you know, the great um, Chinese author, warrior, author, general. He said the victorious warrior wins in his mind before he heads to the battlefield. Whereas the, the loser goes to battle hoping to win. And so I believe this, Now I use this, and I teach this, that if we have, if we can get a clear image of what we want, and it's got to be an important thing. You know, you don't waste this type of energy on small things. This is like big things. Get a clear image of what that is. Like for, for me now, it's my mission of training 100 million people in unbeatable mind. So every day I visualize that, and I get clearer and clearer. And so what I'm doing is, you know, it's, it's kind of like the manifestation principles. I'm creating the conditions in my mental space, which is connected to other mentals, all mental spaces connected to everything, right? Because we're all interconnected at a consciousness level. So I'm creating the conditions for that future, what used to be a future possibility to become more and more probability until it becomes a certainty when you practice it enough and with enough enthusiasm, enough energy. So nine months into me practicing, being a Navy SEAL, graduating from SEAL training, I had this sense of complete certainty wash over me that I was going to be a SEAL and it was going to be a successful one. And about a week later, I got a call from the recruiter saying, Mark, congratulations, you got accepted to go to Officer Canada School with a follow-on to SEAL training. And I'm one of two people that year who were going to be selected. And I was like, okay, that's great. He goes, you don't sound too excited. I said, well, I, I actually am, but I knew this was going to happen. Hmm. And he was like, you SEAL, you guys are weird, you know? <laughs> So, and, and sure enough, sure enough, Jim, when I went to buds, you know, basic underwater demolition seal training, I went from, you know, one week I'm at officer Kenneth school. Next week I'm at buds officer Kenneth school. I felt like a fish out of water. I was like, "Ugh, this isn't what I signed up for. As soon as I stepped foot at buds, I was like, this is it. This is what I visualized. And, you know, 185 guys classed up with me and 19 of us graduated. And I was honor man of my class. Number one graduate and my entire boat crew which is six other guys, we graduate together Incredible. The thing, things I taught them. And, you know, we did it together.
0: Incredible. So uh, a last thought and a follow to that. So during that nine-month period, Mark, where something happened, something happened, something changed, and you just knew, what I'm curious is, like, w- what is that? Is that biochemistry? Is that emotional? Is that spiritual? Were you able to rewire your brain? Like, exactly what happened? This
1: is one of those areas where I would be telling you more than I know. And I probably do that a lot, but honestly, I think it's a spiritual truth that what I was saying earlier is we create the conditions we want inside of our minds or with our minds. And then those conditions show up in the world. So most people haven't learned this. And so what they experience in the world, is like this external world that's in conflict with them, right? That they have to fight against. They always feel like they're swimming upstream. But when you learn this truth and you begin to take control of your mind and you use these tools like controlled breathing and positive dialogue and imagery, and you combine them in a powerful way with laser-like intensity and emotional energy, and you create a vision for a future that you want, then it has to come true or some version of it has to come true. It's just a spiritual truth. And can, you know, one of the things that, that motivates me so much to teach this and to teach it to a lot of people is I, I can imagine, I can only imagine what a hundred million people or a billion people with a positive mindset, understanding these principles that we're talking about and visualizing on healthy earth, or nuclear disarmament or some of the, the existential crises that faces that'll have a, a profound effect. Profound effect.
0: This- is clearly your purpose, your mission. It would be impossible, Mark, for us to get into a 45-minute conversation. And I don't wanna say do it justice because there's so much great information in what you just shared, but there's right. so much more. Needless to say, you're a coach, you're a CEO, you're a best-selling author, you're a lifetime martial artist, you're a podcast host, et cetera, and you are teaching these things, and you've made this very clear. I would like 100 million people or more to have <laughs> access to this information, and then would the world be so different if somebody's listening right now and they want to work with you or they want you to work with their companies, I mean, I understand that there is social media, people know where to find you, but what is the best place to find the source of all this information and for people to reach out to you?
1: Well, there's, there's two. One, you already mentioned, my book on Bill Mind is a great starter toolkit that can be found anywhere, like Amazon, whatnot. But we just created this year a really cool 30-day intro course. You know, our, our regular course was a year long, you know, because- I came from the principle that you can't mass produce excellence. You know, in the seals, you couldn't mass produce a Navy seal. It took five years. So this training of unbeatable mind in its core format takes a, a minimum year, but we cr- we condense that to 30 day course and we have a, a free trial version of it. Meaning you don't pay anything unless you get a lot of value out of it, which everyone does. And that's at uh, unbeatablemind.com slash challenge forward slash challenge. It's phenomenal. I do all the teaching. You get it's 15 minutes a day, one video a day. And I go through box breathing. I go through visualization. I go through micro goals, all the cool stuff that we've talked about. So unbeatablemind.com forward slash challenge. I think
0: think that's awesome. And of course, it was Unbeatable Mind. The first time I picked up that book, I read right through it and I knew that I wanted to meet you and connect with you and have a relationship with you. And I'm so glad that we have that. Mark, I I can't thank you enough. I mean, I I got so much out of that, even despite the conversations we've had and all the material that I've read. So I appreciate you very much. I appreciate the mission very much. And I know my listeners do too. Mark, thank you so much for that.
1: Thank you, Jim. I appreciate you too. Hooyah.
0: What a great, great conversation with Mark Devine. I would encourage you to head on over to his site and consume as much of his content as you possibly can. His book, Unbeatable Mind, is still one of my favorite reads ever. And why is that? Because it deals with the one theme or thread that is running through this entire reinvention project. Mindset. 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 It probably sounds like I'm beating a dead horse, but you simply are not going to have a superior life or superior experiences without any elite mindset or, in Mark's words, an unbeatable mind. And he's right. Develop an unbeatable mind and you're going to have an unbeatable life. Notice I'm not saying an undefeated life because we all get our asses kicked, but an unbeatable life as a result of creating an unbeatable mind. So again, how do you do that? By feeding the courage wolf, by learning to control your thoughts and quiet your mind, by recognizing and killing negative patterns, and then quickly redirecting them into something positive and productive. By visualizing and by doing the deep self-introspective work necessary to determine who you are, who you want to be, and how hard you're willing to work to get there. Mark shared techniques and tactics to help with that, including meditation and breathing. But in addition to that, you need to have an offensive mindset. You have to have the courage to follow your convictions, to live the life that you want to live and not the life that somebody else has chosen for you. Or the life that you simply do not have the courage to chase yourself. Do the deep dive on yourself, because as Mark reminds us, Socrates said, quote, an unexamined life is not worth living, end quote. And then make sure you have the balls to go after whatever it is you want. Otherwise, as Mark also reminds us, Emerson says you'll live a, quote, life of quiet desperation if you don't attack those goals. In other words, Learn to condition your mind like a muscle because it is the most important muscle you have. Then learn to concentrate deeply. And then and only then can you do the deep work necessary to change your world and the world around you. Look for the patterns that don't serve you. Ditch them and create new ones that will. Ask yourself, is this thought or action going to lead me closer to the purpose-driven life I'm looking for? If not, don't think it. Don't act on it. If it will, attack it and then move on to the next target. And then finally, the thing that I like best about Mark Devine is he's a warrior now through and through. But he's so cerebral and he's so mindful and he's so peaceful about it. Even though he could, he doesn't crack your skull to get his point across. Instead of being up in your grill and yelling at you to do more, he's saying slow the F down. And that less actually is more. Stop. Stop think deeply, and then do it over and over and over again until you become really proficient. As always, I hope that you got as much out of this amazing conversation with Mark Devine as I did. And if so, please make sure you're subscribed, leave a review, and share it with somebody else who you think might benefit from it. And as always, thank you so much for making the time to listen, and I can't wait to get back after it next week right here on The Reinvention Project. You have an amazing week, and I'll see you then.